Last year I heard a uh, minister from England speak about a tool for evangelism that he had uh, created several years ago and was being updated, and they were giving away one of his tracts that he had written, a gospel tract, a little booklet to be given out to those uh, who do not know God that you would like to see come to understanding of God. And the title of that tract was, Who is the Real Jesus? And the opening passages, or the opening pages rather, of that uh, tract, there were all kinds of summary statements about all the popular ideas about who Jesus is. And the point of the tract was to say, look, let's let Jesus tell us who he is so that we can understand why he is a important to us today. Likewise, we find ourselves now halfway through chapter 3 of Luke's gospel. We see Luke himself seeking to answer this very question. Namely, not just simply who is Jesus, but who is the Christ? Who is the one that would come in fulfillment of God's promises in the Old Testament to be the Savior for his people? Who is he? What kind of a person would he be like? What would he accomplish? And through John's words and the genealogy that follows, this is the very question that we see being answered from the, uh, the second half of Luke 3. Who is the Christ? And that's what we want to answer this morning. To do that, I encourage you to follow along as I begin reading God's word at Luke chapter 3, verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Samanian, the son of Joshek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resha, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kazam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Eliakim, the son of Maleah, the son of Minah, the son of Mattathah, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Pelag, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arph- 
Arphaxed, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaleliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. May God bless the reading of his word. This passage opens right in the midst of John's ministry. He's been calling people to make themselves ready for the coming of God and his Messiah. And the people begin to wonder if John himself is going to be the Christ. Luke says at that time people were expecting God's word. They wanted it. They were longing for it. And suddenly in their midst, here is this man walking out of the wilderness in the spirit and power. And even as we see in other gospels, the very appearance, the dress sense, which was not very fashionable, of Elijah preaching like they had never heard before. He was truly one as like the prophets of old. And people began to wonder, is this man John, is he the Christ? And John says, no, I I am not the Christ. He is far greater than I am or will ever be. And from John's words in Jesus' genealogy, four pictures emerge that tell us who Christ is and how he is superior to John. This is important for us to understand because in seeking to know and understand these four pictures, we ourselves will have a deeper joy and a greater confidence in Jesus as the Christ, as the one who can save us and redeem us, bringing us into intimate fellowship with God. So four things that help us to know who the Christ is going to be. First of all, Christ is the great Savior. Christ is the great Savior. John describes three ways in which Christ will be the great Savior. Greater than John as the greatest of prophets. First, he is a mighty Savior. He is a mighty Savior. He says in verse 16, He who is mightier than I is coming. Now that seems like a pretty straightforward statement. He's mightier than John. But we have to remember where we are at in terms of God's redemptive plan. We are on the front edge of the fulfillment of God's promises of the Old Testament. History and prophecy and faith of centuries have been rising up. And now like Niagara, they are are beginning to crash down upon the reality of people's lives. In other words, there's more going on here than a simple affirmation that Christ is more mighty than John. For when we look to the Old Testament, one of the promises made about the Christ is that he will come mighty in power, but not his own power. The power of God that is anointed upon him. So, for example, in Isaiah 11, the prophet says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The name Jesse, the same Jesse, appeared in the genealogy that we just read. Jesse was the father of David, and the Christ is promised to be a descendant of David. And though historically we know from the Old Testament itself that line, that family line of David falls into disrepute and is no longer on the throne in Israel, seemingly powerless, God says he will raise up a branch. The whole dynasty will not reemerge, but one man, one king will come forth and his reign shall bear fruit. He will prosper. And the next verse tells us why he will have success. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The Christ is going to come as promised from the tribe of Judah and the family of David. And he will succeed because unlike all of his predecessors, unlike even his father David, the spirit of the Lord will be upon him in its fullness 
empowering him for ministry and guaranteeing him success. He will be mighty with the Lord's own power. John himself was filled with God's spirit, but now he says this is nothing compared to the power seen in the Christ. He will be far mightier still. He will not just be the mighty Savior, though. He will also be a cleansing Savior, a cleansing Savior. John says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now here we need to pause just for a minute and, help and understand what the word baptize actually means. Today it is so often linked with the religious practice of baptism that we might actually miss the point. We might actually miss the point that, that John is seeking to make here. Part of the reason why we might miss it is because we normally in the New Testament translate words from Greek, the original language of the New Testament, into English. So in the Greek you will read words like pistis and elpis and agape, and we translate them rightly as faith, hope, and love. But baptize is not a translated English word. The Greek word is baptizo. So instead of translating the word, they just transliterated it. In other words, they took a Greek-sounding word and made it into an English-sounding word. Now, why do they do that? Because, in part, politics. The reality is, some people poured, some people dunked, some people sprinkled, some people sprinkled three times. There's all kinds of things. And rather than, than translate the word, they just said, we're just going to leave it as baptize. Because the church was used to the Latin form of the word as well, and therefore we don't want to rock the boat. What does baptizo actually mean, though? It means to plunge into or immerse. And we know this clearly because we've got ancient documents about servants and about wives baptizing, baptizoing their pots and pans. Now, I don't know about you, but you don't get something clean by sprinkling water on it. At least I don't at my house. Even high-pressure water, right? That thing needs to be submerged and pulled back out, and then it's wiped down and it's made clean, right? And so likewise here, this is important because the Bible teaches a doctrine of the believer's union with Christ. When Paul says that those who have faith in Christ have been baptized into Christ, he means more than simply they got wet, He means more than simply they went through the external rite of passage into the New Testament covenant community. It means that water baptism was pointing to a greater spiritual reality. They have been baptized, they have been immersed, plunged into Christ. Biblically speaking, that means the believer's life has been united to the life of Christ. So that all that life did in his life and his death and his resurrection now belongs to the believer because we have been immersed into him and his life. So John is drawing on the words of the Old Testament of Isaiah 4 to show us that this is why the Christ brings a superior baptism. John is simply dunking people in the river. But Christ is going to come and he is going to baptize us with his very spirit. Jesus gives the spirit who brings new life to sinners. The spirit sets us apart from the world, claiming us for God, adopting us as his children. The spirit makes us holy and seals us for eternity as God's people, ensuring that nothing will will ever separate us from the love of God and our foot will never slip off into the eternity of judgment. That is the kind of baptism that the Christ is going to bring. 
But John says he will also bring a baptism of fire. This leads us to the last thing that we'll see about the superiority of Christ's work. He is a mighty Savior, he is a cleansing Savior, and he is a judging Savior. He is a judging Savior. It's been said that while John 3.16 was previously the most famous verse in the Bible, it is now Matthew 7.1. Judge not lest ye be judged. Right? You ever hear that on television and movies? All the time. Even without reference to the man who spoke it, Jesus. And it's assumed Jesus didn't judge anybody. And John says that is the farthest thing from the truth. In fact, he, above all else, judges rightly. In contrast to John, whose ministry was pretty uh, indiscriminate, Jesus is coming very specifically to judge. Okay? So consider that John's ministry is simply one, he's like the bullhorn, calling for people to prepare for the Lord's coming. He's not looking at people and saying, I'm not sure you really believe. He's saying, everybody come and prepare your hearts and make ready for the Lord's coming. Repent! Through baptism, as a sign that you believe that God has forgiven your sins. And yes, John may have had some level of wisdom, some level of pastoral insight. As someone comes down to be baptized, the look in their eyes or the, or, or the, the tears that stream down their face, he might have thought they, they appear sincere. But the reality is he doesn't know. All he's called to do is dunk, to preach repentance and dunk. But that's not what Jesus is going to do. Jesus' ministry is greater than that. He will baptize not just his people with the Spirit, but he will bring a baptism of fire. In other words, he will immerse people into divine judgment. And John makes that clear in the next verse, verse 17. Christ's winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. When the wheat was harvested, there was a uh, big wooden fork, I'm told, and they would take that and throw it up. And if it was not a windy day, someone had a fan, and they would be blowing this fan. And the the worthless husk, the chaff, would blow off uh, uh, out of the way, and the wheat that was heavier would fall down. The wheat would be gathered up, stored in a barn, ultimately used to make food, and the chaff was good for nothing. It would be gathered up, and it would be burned into the fire. And this is the imagery that John is, is drawing upon to point to the ministry of Christ. And it's specifically that element of separation that he's getting at when he talks about the baptism of fire. Christ is going to divide humanity. He is going to split them right down the middle. There will be those who are God's people, having repented and trusted in Him to have forgiveness and life and saving grace from God, and they, at the end, will go on to be with Him forever and eternity. On the other hand, there will be those who love themselves and their own self-made gods more than the living God. There will be those who refuse to bow the knee to Christ and refuse to trust Him with their lives. They will be judged for their sin. These three things point to Christ as the mighty Savior. But what we also see is that Christ is the worthy King. Christ is the worthy King. Now sometimes when we read the Bible, knowing 
the cultural background to the passage is essential to understanding its meaning. If you read about the Abrahamic covenant being cut in, in Genesis 15, if you do not understand the cultural context, it is not going to make any sense to you. You've got God telling Abraham to slaughter a bunch of animals, cut them in half, and uh, vultures are coming down, and he's scaring them off, and then Abraham is not cold, and God appears and goes down the middle of these things, and you're thinking, what in the world's going on? Well, if you understand the cultural background, this was literally known as cutting the covenant. And what you would typically do, if I was going to enter into covenant with you, you're going to give me some money and I'm going to do a service for you, and it was really a lot of money and a big service, we would make a covenant, an agreement. We would slaughter these animals, we would spread them apart, we would join hands, and we would walk through the slaughtered animals together, knowing if one of us breaks the covenant, we're going to be looking like those animals. Our life is forfeit. But God knocks Abraham out, and he gives him a vision dream of God alone coming down and moving through the slaughtered animals. What is he signaling to Abraham? He's signaling, it is not up to you to keep this covenant. I alone will keep this covenant with you and fulfill the promises I've made. Now you understand, right? So there's a sense in which there are certain passages you've got to know the cultural background to understand. There are other times you don't. You can get the basic sense. You understand what's going on, but it's like watching an old black and white television. You're seeing the program, you hear the dialogue, you know what's going on, and then someone comes along and they, they jack something in and flip a switch and suddenly you've got high def color. And wow, now it's, it's kind of different, isn't it? I mean, you, same show, but you understand with a greater depth what is happening here. And that's, that's the passage before us now. It is not that we will not understand what's happening, but we will understand with greater clarity what is being talked about in these verses. The experience will be heightened for us in verse 16. Here we first see that Christ is the worthy king, and that means he is worthy of our humility. He is worthy of our humility. When the people think John is the Christ, he says, no, 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 no. You understand. Christ is greater than me. In fact, verse 16, he says that he is one, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now, on the surface, we know what he's saying, right? Christ is better than me. I can't even stoop to untie the man's sandals. But let's stop for a minute and think about the culture of the day. You had, much like Jesus, you had other men, other teachers, other rabbis who would gather disciples around them. And the disciples would follow this rabbi around, and they would learn the Mosaic Law, and they would learn how to live it out in their daily lives. But interestingly enough, for the most part, these disciples would become de facto servants of the rabbi. He would not need to lift his hand to do anything. The servants gathered around him would do it all for him. And yet, and yet we have from ancient writings that the one thing they were never expected to do was to stoop so low as to untie the rabbi's sandal. In fact, the, the, the Jewish text we have says essentially this, that is the work of slaves only and even Jewish slaves are never expected to demean themselves in that way, to untie a man's sandal. So now we understand even better what John is saying. John is saying that he, when it comes to the worthiness of Christ, I am so far below him that I am not worth to do even the lowliest of tasks for him, the most demeaning thing imaginable, and I'm not worth doing that for him considering how much more worthy he is than me. It's that humility, though, 
before the worth of Christ that also leads to our him being rather worthy of our sacrifice. It's him being worthy of our humility that leads secondly to him being worthy of our sacrifice. And let me draw your mind and your attention to verse 18. Luke tells us in just, a, uh, just a little bit later that with many other exhortations, John preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them, that he locked up John in prison. Now the other Gospels will go in more detail, but Luke uh, is, is not is really not wanting to put the focus on John here. His whole point is to kind of summarize John's life, cap that off, and, and signal to us, now we're focusing on Christ. Every, everything that we're going to see in the rest of this gospel is on this Christ that is coming. Nevertheless, before he moves on, he gives us one final detail about John's relationship to Christ. Namely, that he was bold in his preaching of the coming of Christ and the necessity for all men to repent of their sins and be ready that even when he came to speaking before one of the most powerful political leaders, John didn't back down. And he told the man, it was wrong for you to take the wife that you did in the way that you did. God's judgment will be upon you unless you also repent. As you can imagine, political leaders don't like hearing that. And therefore what we see is that John was locked in prison because of it. What Luke doesn't tell us is that John actually dies in prison. Beheaded. For his faithfulness and preparing for the Christ. He saw that Christ was worthy of his suffering and even his death in service to him. And it's important that we see that these two things are related. You will never be willing to joyfully serve Christ in sacrificial ways if you don't first kill the root of pride in your life. Understand this well, because it is essential for the Christian life. You will never willingly and joyfully serve Christ in sacrificial ways if you do not first kill the root of pride in your life. You will never be willing to be shamed. You will never be willing to be poor. You will never be willing to suffer prison. You will never be willing to die for Christ if you aren't first humbled before him. And John was humble about his calling. Think, think about whatever big name mega church pastor you can think of today and transfer all the attention, all of the respect, all of the applause that individual gets and transfer it to John the Baptist in his day. He was the celebrity preacher of the day. People, people flocked out from out from the towns and the villages, out to the wilderness to hear this man preach. People loved his preaching so much, they were getting such spiritual truth, which they got from no other shepherd in Israel, that they, they, they were forced to include, surely, could this man be the Christ? Think about how easy it would have been for John to enjoy that adulation and praise. Think about how easy it would have been for him to, to become spiritually drunk on the praise that was being heaped upon him and the celebrity-like status that he had with the people. 
But he was like, no, that's not what it's about at all. In fact, later in John 3.30, he would say, Christ must increase and I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. That is a hard lesson to learn for all of us. But it's especially true when we look at real life celebrities who profess faith in Christ today. We just watch the news and what we see is that they find it very hard to establish a platform for their self and their life and whatever their occupation is and a platform that magnifies Christ. They can't do it very often. What they have failed to comprehend is that you cannot be a friend of the media, you cannot be a celebrity in the culture and magnify and lift up the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like him, you will be crucified for it. And so we see people that unfortunately, as even as a Christian culture, we put on pedestals for really no good reason other than the fact that somebody is popular, and we see them make terrible decisions and say stupid things all the time, all the while claiming to be Christians. Why? Not because they think that's what Christ would have done or what that's in the Bible, but they've convinced themselves, this is what I need to say or do to be popular. And therefore, they fumble the ball. That, that They have not truly understood that he must increase and I must decrease. How much more us, who are rarely in the public eye, do we struggle with this? Can we, with any sense of truthfulness, say that the desire of our life is that Christ increase and that we decrease? Can we say that we feel unworthy to do the most menial of tasks in service to Christ? My suspicion is that we probably don't, most of us. Otherwise, we wouldn't find it so hard to come in the middle of the week and serve one another by vacuuming, by picking up the bits of garbage that are left in this room, and by scrubbing out toilets before Sunday. And yet, week after week after week, something as simple as the church building cleaning schedule goes unfilled. Why? Well, we can say we have busy schedules and we have busy lives, but my, but my guess is that for most of us, it ultimately comes down to a root of pride in our hearts that says, I don't want to give up my time to do that for them. I don't, want to, I don't want to be willing to serve in that way. And what we're saying is, I want to increase. And all the while, Christ is decreasing. Are we willing to be demeaned? Are we willing to lose face, to be mocked, to experience poverty or leave this world friendless? Or are we too prideful for that? Is our vision of the glory of Christ too meager to lead us to do those things if it meant he would be lifted up and served? John's vision wasn't. And ours won't either if we will simply understand the humility and the glory of Christ himself. I want us to flash forward to the end of Christ's life, to the end of his ministry, right before he goes to the cross. In his gospel, John tells us that before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing the Father had given him all things into his hands, that he had come from the Father and was going back to God, he rose from supper. 
He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. He poured water into a a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And when he washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done. For truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than one who is sent. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus goes beyond simply untying the sandals of the disciples' feet at the door. He grabs a basin, he grabs a towel, and he begins washing off the dirt and the grime of their journey. Why? John says for three reasons. First, he did it because he loved them. He loved them. Imagine this. Imagine this. Forget about all that you have heard, all that you have learned, all that you have become so accustomed to hearing, and consider Jesus, God in the flesh, the one who has dwelled for all eternity in perfect fellowship in the, of the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, who has dwelled in glory of unapproachable light, takes on flesh and so loves 12 men. Even one that he knows is about to leave and sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. He loves them so much that he stoops down and does the most demeaning but helpful task he could, and he washes their feet. Secondly, he did this because he knew he was his father's son. Knowing that the father had given him all things, that he had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, he says, Jesus did this. Jesus was confident in God's love for him, and it freed him to love others. He knew that it didn't matter if he was demeaned, if he displayed humility and servanthood. It was not a matter of losing face because he knew that God loved him and that God was going to deliver all things to his hand. Finally, Jesus says he did this as an example for us. Jesus endured every temptation that we have. And to my mind, more than anyone else in history, he was tempted to pride. How could he not be? How can he not be the one person who had something to be proud of, of all humanity? Yet the scripture says he was tempted in every way and yet without sin. And he saw in his disciples, I think, the endemic human nature to be prideful, to be prideful. So he sets the example for us in effect saying, don't think too highly of yourself. Never think too highly of yourself. Because you and I both know a servant is never greater than his master. And look what your master is willing to do. Look at what your master is willing to do. When we see the humility of Christ, we should have every reason to be humble ourselves. When we see the love of Christ for his people, even dying to save us, we should have every reason to also love others. When we see the humble glory of our Savior, We should have every reason to serve him at any time, in any way, under any circumstance. With this being our theme, he must increase and I must decrease. Third, we see that Christ is going to be the beloved son. Christ is the beloved son. 
Luke has given us a glimpse of John's future, but now he steps back into his ministry. In verse 21, he tells us, When all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. At least two important realities emerge from these verses about Christ's sonship. First of all, it is clear he is a son for humanity. He is a son for humanity. Luke says, when all people were baptized, Jesus also had been baptized. Now last week, we saw that the baptism that John was giving was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's a direct quote from the verse, and everything about that verse makes it very confusing why Jesus would be baptized. There's no uh, sin in his life, therefore there was no need to repent and no need for forgiveness. Why is Jesus coming to be baptized? Surely John was even wondering that, and the other Gospels tell us he was. Why is he being baptized? Simply put, he is identifying with the people he came to save. He He is coming down and being in every way like one of us. Think of it like this. Some of you are studying Leviticus with us on Sunday nights. And do you remember the work of the high priest that we saw who came in once a year into the very heart of the tabernacle, into God's very presence to offer offer the sacrifice of atonement? Do you remember first he had to be physically cleansed to show that spiritually he was set apart for this great task? He He was distinct in that sense from the rest of the congregation of Israel here. God's Spirit descends upon Jesus, signaling that he is apart from every other person in the world. This dove comes down and lands on his shoulder, signaling God is with him for the task of the Christ. And it's not as if he didn't have the Spirit before. We know that he was conceived by the Spirit. Luke tells us that in chapter 1, verse 35, that he was already filled with the Spirit of wisdom, verse 20 of chapter 2. But this was the public declaration that the Spirit of God was with him and upon him, empowering him for his work as Christ. Furthermore, remember that the high priest, when he went in to make atonement, he wore a special breastplate. And on that breastplate were 12 individual special jewels representing the 12 tribes of Israel on his priestly garment. In other words, as he is going in to make atonement, he is standing as the representative for all of God's people. Likewise, by being baptized, Christ is identifying with sinners so that he can stand before God in their place. He is identifying with those whose lives need it to be marked by repentance. He is the representative, their substitute before God, living ultimately a perfect life of obedience to God's law, overcoming every temptation. Why? For those of us who can never do it. So here at the outset he says, this is why I have come. This is who I have come for. That obedience will ultimately culminate in him taking up a cross and being crucified for sinners, dying under God's judgment for their sins. This is the ministry of Christ to come into the world for sinful humanity. And that work comes to us by trusting him to be our Savior. By not looking to ourselves or any other thing, but saying, I trust you with everything of my life. Everything that's important, everything that's unimportant, I trust you with it. But most of all, I trust you to bring me to God. Paul sums all this up in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Christ is the Son for humanity, but He is also, secondly, the Son from God. The Son from God. 
Notice again verse 17. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God declares that Jesus is his beloved son. More than anything, that is an affirmation of Jesus' deity. He is the son from God because he is the son of God. Remember what we saw at the end of Luke 2 when Jesus was 12 years old already from studying the scriptures. He knew as, as seeking after God, he knew that he was the Christ, that he was the very son of God. And when he began to talk that way and teach that way, some said he was crazy. In fact, his own family at one point says, uh, Jesus has just gone off the rails. He's crazy. He's nuts. And his brothers and his sisters and his mother are trying to get him to come back home and to stop all this preaching nonsense about him being the Son of God and the Messiah. But others knew he wasn't crazy. And they accused him of blasphemy. And if he was anybody else, he would be guilty of blasphemy. But he really was God's son. And here is the Father, God the Father, opening the heavens, shouting down, declaring for all to hear, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. We could spend the whole time today just on these verses, exploring the revelation of the triune God. But we don't have time for that. So we'll just say this. It's clear that God isn't a being who exists as one person assuming different identities with which to reveal himself. A common misunderstanding today. Here is a God, one being, who exists as three persons. We see them all here. The Father speaking from heaven to the Son and sending the Spirit to come and to light upon him. Three persons existing eternally as one God. And notice the context of this divine acknowledgement in verse 21. When Jesus had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. Luke is the only one that tells us that Jesus was praying in this context. And frankly, that verse alone could sustain the weight of a whole sermon. But let me just make this point. It's out of the context of Christ's relationship to the Father that he prayed and received not only the visible empowerment of God's Spirit, but also an affirmation of God's love and delight. Why is that significant? Several reasons, but let me give you one, because it should be of immediate comfort and encouragement to you. If you are a disciple of Christ, if you have repented and turned from your sin and have looked to Christ in faith, then this is significant because this is the pattern of your own relationship with God. Through Christ, we not only have a right legal standing with God, we also have a right relationship with God. In Christ, we are forgiven, reconciled, and adopted children of God. And just like Christ, it is when we pray, it is when we call out to God, is when we call out in joy and in desperation to our Heavenly Father. It's when we pray that God manifests His presence in our life, revealing His love for us as His children, revealing His delight in us that we would trust Him with the smallest and greatest moments of our life. Christ is the beloved Son of God, so all who put their faith in Him might also be beloved children of God. We have no more time, but let me give you the final point. The Christ is the new man. The Christ will come and he will be forever the new man. We'll take next week and we'll unpack these verses. But let me leave you with this. From this genealogy that Luke gives, it's different than the one in Matthew. In fact, it's backwards. And it's there for a reason. He's making the point 
more than anything else that Jesus comes not just as a descendant of David, not just just as a son of Abraham or a new Israel or a new king or a new prophet. He comes as the new Adam. He comes as the one from whom an entire new human race will be created. Not Jew, not Gentile, Christian. Christian. Many years ago, Senator John Stennis was looking forward to resting from a long day at government. And after parking his car, he began to walk to his front door when two men came out of the darkness, robbed him, and shot him twice. News of the shooting of Senator Stennis, the chairman of the most powerful armed forces committee, shocked Washington and the nation. For nearly seven hours, the senator was on the operating table in Walter Reed Hospital. But it was less than two hours later that another politician was driving home when he heard about the shooting on the radio. He immediately turned his car around and drove directly to the hospital. And there he saw the senator's staff swamped with incoming calls and reporters. And they could not keep up with all the requests for information about the senator's condition. So he looked over and he saw an unattended switchboard. And he sat down and he immediately began going to work answering calls until daylight. The next day, when he was done, he stood up, he stretched, he put on his overcoat, and just before leaving, he introduced himself quietly to the operator sitting next to him, saying, Hi, I'm Mark Hatfield, happy to help out. And then Senator Mark Hatfield discreetly slipped out of the building. At the time, the press could hardly handle the story. There seemed to be no way that a conservative Republican would give a liberal Democrat the time of day, let alone spend hours doing not talks in front of a microphone, but a menial task for them and be happy to help out and take very little credit for the whole thing. How much more should that be us this morning? Not in serving a political enemy, but our very Lord and Savior. Seeing the greater glory of Jesus in his ministry as the Christ should bring us to our knees in worship and love and obedience. And seeing the generosity and saving power of God should strip us of all of our pride and lead us to joyfully serve him all the days of our life. Father, that is our prayer this morning. God, that you would so work your grace within us. You would so work within us the message of the gospel of Christ, of the one infinitely glorious being who unimaginably humbled himself and served a sinful, rebellious humanity that they might be saved from their sins. God, when we hear that message, how can we not be humble before you? How, how can we stand prideful expecting anything from you in this life. For you have already given us the very best that you could possibly give, your very son. And yet, God, pride is like a festering cancer that is unrelenting in its spread through our heart and our thinking so that all that we do is driven by a sense of self-preservation. God, this morning I pray that in each and every one of us you would kill that cancer of pride, that you would take that trunk of sin and chop it down at the root as we consider the glory of our Savior, of his willingness to serve rather than be served. God, may we delight to come before you 
rejoicing in the relationship we have because of Christ. But more than that, may we delight to serve you with our lives. Father, we pray that we will come to a place where we will truly say that your son must increase and we must decrease so that no task is too big for we know you will be with us and no task is too small because we know that we are serving you and no task will ever be too, too degrading or menial because we know it is done for the glory of your son. Father, only you can work this change in us. We pray that you do it by helping us remember that all that we have in this life that is worth anything is your son. And you have given him freely to all who would put their faith in him and trust them with their lives. This is our prayer. We pray that you would answer it for the good of your kingdom and the glory of your name. Amen.